Well, happy Mother's Day to everyone who is celebrating today. It's a great day, isn't it, when we celebrate our wives and the work they do for us. Well, this morning I'm going to get right into this because it's long. And uh, I've titled the message, Gird Up Your Loins of Your Mind, Preparing for Action, as we prepare ourselves for action. You know, throughout history, fires have led to drastic changes in population patterns, infrastructures, the course of world events. There are many fires that changed history. Seven, in fact, that history records as great. In fact, the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria. It contained the knowledge of the ancient world. Estimated it contained a half a million scrolls from Assyria, Greece, Persia, Egypt, and India. And scholars from around the globe at that time would travel there to study and to work. Then there was the Great Fire of London in 1666. That fire burned about a quarter of London's metropolises, and about 100,000 people were left homeless. There in America, the Detroit Fire in 1805, the Chicago Fire in 1881, the New York City Fire of 1885. You know, we could spend our whole session this morning just on fires and the destruction they cause. I want to jump backwards, though, now to the time of Peter and the Apostles. After the ascension of Christ into heaven, when the gospel started to spread like a wildfire. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter's sermon, it says in verse 41 that about 3,000 came to believe that day alone, and they were coming to faith every day. But persecution was becoming greater and greater for Christians. And in A.D. 64, the city of Rome built, burned, and the citizens of Rome actually believed that Nero had had caused this fire, and he did it in order to build a bigger and a better city. And it destroyed everything that they had. It devastated them. It cher- everything they had cherished was gone. You can imagine that, can't you? And the resentment became very bitter towards Nero. But in order to save his empire, he had to direct the Romans away from the hostility towards himself. And he did so by blaming Christians who were already hated because of their association with the Jewish people, who were seen also as hostile to Roman culture. And when Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fires, it began a vicious persecution, and it spread throughout the entire empire. In A.D. 70, just as Jesus predicted, Titus began the destruction of Jerusalem, and he burnt it. And so Peter now is writing this letter from Rome. He calls it from Babylon, near the end of his life. As John MacArthur says, Peter does not want this letter to be found in Rome and the church further persecuted. And so he uses the code name Babylon for his location of writing because of the city's idolatry. And it really makes sense, doesn't it? The believers are suffering escalating persecution. And so Peter is writing to teach them and us how to live victoriously, even in the midst of hostility. As they are scattered, they are considered now as pilgrims and aliens, as he addresses them in this letter in verse 1. 
Peter wants to teach them and he wants to teach us how to live without losing hope, without becoming bitter, to trust in their Lord Jesus Christ while all the time looking for His return. And that even while under distress, a Christian can still evangelize. And even while being exposed to a world system that is energized by Satan and his demonic demons. And so we pick up this letter this morning by beginning in verse 13. And we're going to conclude the chapter. But once again, before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we open up your word to us, remind us that you gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness, which is found in your word. So we ask you the mornings this morning, please open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to be able to comprehend, and our hearts to follow, to obey what your will is for each of us as we walk through this world by faith, not by sight, as we await your return to take all of your children home to the place that you have been making for, you, for us, your bride, the church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So would you open your Bibles with me this morning? And let's begin to read then our passage together, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13. As Peter pens then the God-breathed words given to him to instruct all believers. Verses 13 through 17. He says to them and to us, therefore. Now, what did he use that word, therefore? Because of what they previously learned. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If, or whenever you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Okay, so let's address then how Peter tells us what God says that we are to do about living in a polluted world. And he begins by telling us, what, we should look, what that should look like in response to our salvation, how we are to live. In these first four verses, Peter wastes no time. And he starts by how we are to live in regard to ourselves. We are to be self-controlled by preparing our minds for action. Well, what's that look like? How do you prepare your mind for action? That means we are to be disciplined. We are to be disciplined in our thinking. I like the way the new... New King James translation put this. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. We are also to be ready, pre-prepared for the trials in this life. In other words, as James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing and remember this may seem hard but as a believer in Jesus Christ as 2nd Corinthians 5:17 states therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creature the old things have passed away behold new things have come in verse 13 
he says then, to prepare your minds for action by keeping and being sober-minded. Sober-minded in spirit means to be spiritually minded, steadfast, self-controlled. It means we are to, to reject the ways of the world and instead focusing on Jesus Christ, His Word, and fixing our hope then in the promises of grace and eternal life that we have for our future, which Jesus promised for us in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And if you were to do a search on the promises of God, for those who believe, you'll find that Jesus made over 30 promises. And I would like to share just six of them with you this morning, because all the promises of God for His children are in Christ Jesus. He confirms them, He secures them, He purchases them for all who believe in Him. As Galatians 3.21-29 declares, when we as believers in Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. Jesus made some very important promises. So let's look at six of them that Jesus made for us. The first was the reason that He came. As the God-man, fully man, yet fully God, to provide the promise of salvation. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4-7, through 7, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs of eternal life. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In John 6, verse 37, it says, He who comes to Him, He will not cast out. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, or to the Greek. And there are many more verses that I could share with you regarding this promise, and in these four verses alone, though, he shares the promise of salvation. Christ is clearly saying that as a believer in Him, that He will give us new life. He will save us from an eternity in hell. In Romans 8, 34 through 39, it tells us that when we are in the hands of God, nothing can separate us from Him. So when we have the gift of salvation, you can never lose it. The second promise is that we can be sure of is the gift of serving. You know, when Christ calls you and me to do something, He already knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses, and He knows our age. He knows what we're capable of, capable of, or what we're not capable of. 
The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit grants spiritual gifts according to His will. According to how He has chosen to use the believer to minister to others. Every believer has been granted a gift or gifts, plural. Often, though, we become hard on our own selves. We try to prevent the full blessings of God from being revealed by saying to ourselves, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm just not smart enough to do this. What does Jesus say? He says in Matthew 4.19, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll assign you tasks that you think your knowledge is capable of. No, Christ is clearly promising that if we would just follow him, he will do the work in us. He will transform us into disciples who are usable. We may feel inadequate, but remember that our Lord has promised to make us fishers of men. He will lead the transformation. All you and I need to do is to follow. Ephesians chapter 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Why? So that we would walk in them. In John chapter 12, verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, the third promise I want us to look at then is from Jesus as our helper is to give us guidance. Guidance. Let me ask you, do you ever become distracted and, and, and make wrong decisions? <laughs> yeah, of course we all do, don't we? Because our sinful flesh is fighting us every day, every step of the way. We all need guidance. We need help. Well, Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. In Psalm 48, 14, it says, For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. You remember the parable of the wise and foolish builders? Where the one built his house on the sand and the other one built his house upon the rock. Well, you remember what Jesus was, he was teaching his disciples. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 and 47, he asked them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. You remember the results of that parable? When the storm came, the one on the sand, what happened to it? It was destroyed, wasn't it? It was smashed. The one on the rock, though, stood firm and solid. It's a picture for us as believers to stand firm, preparing our minds for any storm, any trial in this life, as we keep looking to the future hope that we have in Christ. He will guide us. He will help us understand His will. Guidance then comes from being close to Jesus through His Word in obedience and prayer as He longs for us to know Him, to have a close relationship with Him. And when we are close to Him, then we will make decisions 
that will take us in the right direction, ones that will bring honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the fourth promise I want to look at then is rest and renewal. Again, how many of us get tired? We just get tired. Maybe you're involved in a lot of ministries and you just get tired and you just want to quit sometimes. You just say, I need to rest. Well, a life of a Christian is full of blessings, but it's not always easy, is it? It can be very hard. But Jesus dealt with that also. Remember what he says to the sinner in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow, those are very powerful words, even for an old believer like me. And it's one of the greatest promises that we can receive on here on earth because we are never alone. He's told us He will never leave us or forsake us. When we are tired, we can rest in Him. When we feel as if we can't go on any longer, He reassures us. When our walk with Him seems blah and it just seems empty, we can be renewed through His Word and set on fire again like we were at the beginning. And when life is near an end, we can still be reassured that He will take us through the valley of the shadow of death to a new life with Him forever. The writer of Lamentations in Lamentations 3, 21 through 23 says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, in other words, His steadfast love ne indeed never ceases. For His compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is, our, is your faithfulness, the Lord's faithfulness. The fifth promise then is that of the Holy Spirit. We find the promise of the Holy Spirit given to us in John chapter 14, verse 16, when Jesus is telling the disciples that He's going to go away, but He says to them, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. He's speaking to the disciples why He must go away, and reassuring them that though He goes away, and He will be gone physically, they will not be alone. The Holy Spirit will come, and they will be, He will be a counselor to them. You know, as Christians, you and I receive the Holy Spirit at the moment we receive Christ alone by faith alone. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He guides us. He comforts us. He gives us understanding of God's Word. He inspires us, and He empowers us in order to accomplish His will. Christ didn't return to the Father and leave us as orphans trying to find our way through this dark world. He returned to the Father and He gifted you and me with this Holy Spirit so that we may continue the work of building His kingdom. Well, the sixth promise and the last one I want to look at this morning is that of eternal life. I want to ask you this morning, think about this in your mind. How many times do I think about heaven and the place where Christ is preparing for me? If you're honest with yourself, it's probably not very often. Instead, we become consumed, don't we, with this earthly life, our success, 
by investing our money so that we can live comfortably. As parents, we make wills so that our children are taken care of when we're gone. We even make weekly, monthly plans and lists, which my dear wife loves, and she's always trying to get me to make one, <laughs> for the next day's activities. Well, all of our planning is good, but what happens? Many times our plans often fail, don't they? But God had a plan. He has a promise from His Son that will not fail. In John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If, I, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus is saying, I will come back. I'm coming back. We have that promise that He is preparing a place for you and for me. And when He is ready, when it's all done, and He has the Father's okay, He will return and He will take us to be with Him in that place. You see, our future is settled. We don't have to wonder. We will see Jesus again. We will spend forevermore worshiping Him. We have our hope built completely upon the promises and the grace of God, knowing that we have a home being prepared by Christ, and He will come for us. And so we need to gird up our minds. We need to reject the world by preparing our minds and focusing then on the future grace of God. As it said in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so in verse 13, it says, We need to rest our hope fully upon the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian, in light of our salvation, there's still a future ministry of Christ, and that will be our glorification, our glorified bodies, which is the final culmination of grace. And so he tells us to rest our hope, rest our hope fully upon Jesus Christ when he returns for his bride, the church. You see, Christ was not just making general promises to us. He is making himself known to us as his children and declaring that when we follow Christ, we will never, never be alone. We will always have his love and his guidance. He desires for us. And he gives us rest. He wants to use us to give us rest when we need it. And we are promised then the full blessings of God, as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Well, let's continue then, as Peter instructs us then, how to live in regards to our Savior. That we are to be holy before God. How is that possible? How can we be holy before God? Well, it's because our holiness is essentially 
defined as our new nature, our conduct in light of our previous lifestyle. The Greek word used for holy is hagios, which means pure, morally blameless, or set apart, set apart for holy use. That's what we're called to be as Christians. God has set us apart to serve Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. In Ephesians chapter 2, it details for us how we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God in His mercy and His grace made us alive with Christ. And He has raised us. This is already a done deal. Raised us up with Him in the heavenly places in verse 7. Why? Why would He do that? So that in the ages to come, that He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, it's all by His grace, and we are His workmanship. So as a Christian, then, we should be striving for holiness, to have a relationship with God defined by obedience to His will and being shaped through our sanctification. We're growing in Christ to have His character. As 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in sanctification. You see, it's not just an external thing that begins with it, but it begins with the intent of our heart. Not externally, but in internally, in the intent of our heart, and our motivations, and our attitudes that reflect God. God's Word, then, commands us to live a life above reproach, and in such a way that it will reflect the moral perfection and the purity of Jesus Christ. See, Christ cannot have fellowship with those who are abiding in sin. You know, even though a Christian doesn't lose their salvation, when you, we can lose our fellowship with Him. We can never lose our relationship with Him, though. But to live in sin, that means that you're choosing to live a life outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I can't imagine what he would tell you when you get to heaven. Peter tells us, though, that we are to be reverent towards God. In verse 17, he says, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, fear in the Greek, it's commonly used in Scripture. According to Strong, sometimes positively in relation to God, but more often negatively, uh, that of withdrawing from the Lord or fleeing from His will. Fundamentally, the word is phobos, meaning fear, withdrawal, to flee from, hence to avoid because of dread or fright. But it's not always used that way. There's another Greek word, called semnos, S-E-M-N-O-S, and it's used as an adjective. And it means to have a deep respect, to revere, to be in awe of our God, which is what it's referring to in verse 7. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, you remember what he says? He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... And if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
As for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, as believers, then we are not to continue to indulge in the cravings of our flesh, in our lust, our anger, our greed, our laziness, our selfishness. Because if you or since you address as father, which is another way of saying you're a Christian, you know that he's going to judge each one's work fairly so that you and I need to respect and we need to obey him in all of our endeavors in this world, seeking to honor him by wisely and joyfully seeking to be holy, seeking to put to death any remaining sins in our lives. In Romans 8, verse 13, it says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, these are believers, those who are striving by the Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to understand, to obey, to conform their lives and their obedience to His Word, to the character of Christ. As Romans 8, 29 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, he also glorified. Paul is saying it's the Holy Spirit in us that provides the energy, the power to continually be putting to death our sins. A process that is never going to be over until we die. The Holy Spirit leads us and accomplishes this through our faithful obedience to the Scriptures. And so in light of Peter's admonition, we need to be holy. 2 Peter 3.11 addresses this by asking, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? And you could translate that phrase, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And so in light of who Jesus is and the reality that He is coming again, ask yourself, what sort of of men and women should we be. We should be holy men and women. We should be temptation-defying men and women. We should be mortifying sin men and women. Not self-righteous, but humble men and women who long to live like Jesus, putting off and putting on the character of a new person in Christ that Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24 says, You were taught. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self. We also see that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 14. So ask yourself this morning, What does the way I live say about Jesus in my life? What does the way I live say about Jesus in my life?
And so for our application of verses 13 through 17, I'd like to give you four takeaways that we can use to improve on our lives. And that is first, prepare for action. That means we need to be disciplined in our study of God's word. Second, we need to fix our hope completely upon the future revelation of Jesus Christ. Third, be steadfast, spiritually sober-minded, self-controlled, and disciplined. And lastly, anticipate the second coming of Christ. It could be today. We just don't know. Live in light of who he is and that he could come at any time for his bride, the church. Let's continue then by reading verses 18 through 21 regarding the cost of our salvation. Verse 18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's examine then the cost of our salvation. And I want to begin with the price, but before I do that, I want to first begin by looking at the negative side of living without Christ. You know, salvation, it tells us in these verses, was not purchased with silver or gold. We all know that. You could own it all. You could have all the silver and gold in the world. But when you die, it's not going to help you. You can't take it with you. It wouldn't help you even if you could. Because when you die, there will be nothing for you but judgment. Because without Christ as your Lord, that means that you will die in your sins. And now, as because you have died in your sins, you are going to be required to pay for your sins, not with silver or gold, but with an eternal life in torment in the lake of fire called the second death. Because that is what you have earned as your wages. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Or, if you want to go further, you can look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. It says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. How? According to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, how? According to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what you can expect as an unbeliever along with the devil and all of those who were deceived. As chapter 20 in Revelation, verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow. Not a very pretty picture, is it? Well, we've looked at the negative side of a life without Christ as Lord. Let's then look now at the positive side. In verse 19, because our salvation was bought and purchased by the precious blood of Jesus, 
salvation was not free. It was not free. It cost the life and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The price paid to rescue you and me from the wrath of God. It was the shed blood of His only Son. By His grace, as it says in Romans 3, verse 24 and 25, being justified as a gift, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You know, before we were saved... Our lives were empty, weren't they? They were actually meaningless, as we saw in verse 18. And by our futile, sinful way of life. But now, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and by faith in Christ alone, our lives are supposed to be full. They're happy through Him. It just didn't happen by chance, folks. It was the plan of the triune God. So let's look closer then at this planning. In verses 20 to 21, as Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world to do this, as Scripture says, it was foreordained. So our salvation is not purchased with money. It took the blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, in John 1.29. His death was planned by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The three in one before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Ages before we were born. And yet God, in His grace, included you and me. What a plan. It was accomplished through Jesus, who has appeared to us, as Romans 4.24 says, but for the sake also to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, you probably some of you can quote that verse for me. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. When he says in these last times in verse 20, that's referring to the time from Christ's birth to his second coming. And it was all for the sake of you who through him are now believers in God. And then it says who raised him from the dead. That is actually the outcome of all three persons of the Trinity. As you, as you can read that in Romans 4.24, Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, that it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. And then in John 2.19 and 10.18, we see Jesus says, I can raise myself from the dead. He has the authority. And in 1 Peter 3.18, Romans 1.4 and 8.11, we see the Holy Spirit is also involved in the raising of Jesus from the dead. So the result is that the entire triune of God from beginning to end is involved in our salvation. Who gave Him glory? That's speaking of God the Father at the ascension when Jesus Christ returned to the glory that he had had before the creation of the universe, of everything. All of this was done so that our faith and hope are to be in God. Let's continue then as we begin to explore the vehicle of our salvation. In verses 22 to 25 it says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, 
but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And he finishes the chapter then, and this is the Word which was preached to you. And so the vehicle of our salvation in verses 22 to 25, the first part of verse 22 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, it's speaking then of the new birth. The boo birth, it means that you have experienced regeneration through the faith and the hearing of the word. You have become a believer. You are that person of 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are a new creature in Christ. Those old things are supposed to be gone, done away with. In Titus 3, 3 through 7, it tells us that everyone before our salvation was characterized how? By sinful actions and ungodliness. But according to His mercy, He bestowed upon us a divine cleansing from our sin through Christ. And He gave us a gift of a new life. That is Spirit-generated, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-protected life as an adopted child of God. And one that is promised eternal life and an heir of His kingdom. All by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus declares in John, in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Remember as He's speaking about the resurrection of Lazarus? He's speaking to Mary and He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Oh, when you think about this, how grateful, how thankful should we be that in that plan, the Father chose you and me that the Son would give His life for. By the work of the Holy Spirit, then He calls us to repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ. That He paid the price for our redemption by nailing that certificate of debt, our sins against us, on His cross, shedding His own blood to purchase you and me. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so He is able to promise in us, us eternal life. He gives us a new life as a new creature in Christ with a new nature so that as we surrender then all of our life to Him, as 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20 speaks of, we realize we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Because of that, Galatians chapters 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And Romans 8, verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? Through His Spirit who dwells in you. In verse 22, it also says, Since you are a believer, then you should have a new fervent love of the brethren. With a fervent love and with a pure heart. Fervently means to stretch it to the limits. It means that this kind of love exhibits itself then by meeting the needs of others. 
and it's done to be done with a sincere loving heart that of a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord your master and Savior as Peter says in chapter 4 verse 8 above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins Jesus himself says in John 13 34 a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another in verse 23b through 25 it tells us that this is accomplished for each of us how through God's word through God's word that very book that you're reading in your hands it's God's word that brings us about as Romans 1:16 says where Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek and so Peter is telling us then that God's word is not of corruptible seed of the flesh or like the grass and flowers which wither and dies but God's word is imperishable it's permanent it's unfailing it's living, it's enduring forever, and it's active, used in us by the Holy Spirit. And it is producing fruit in our lives, just so that just like our faith that was given to us as a gift by the Holy Spirit, God's Word is the vehicle then to produce in us fruit. As Galatians 5, 16-26 tells us how we should walk. And the results then are seen in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. In 2 Peter 1, 3, Peter explains for us that this book, our Bible, contains everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. In verse chapter 1, verse 24, we see that unlike the grass and the flower that withers away, the Word of the God, the Word of our Lord, endures how long? Forever, forever. As Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the word of the Lord, word of God is living and it's active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing. As far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 18 it says, Truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And so as we close the chapter, Peter reminds us in verse 25 that this is the word which was preached to you. And so for the application for verses 18 through 25, in light of what we have studied, how should we live as we prepare our minds for action? How should we do that? Well, first, in all of our behavior, we need to strive to be holy because our Savior is holy. We second, we need to remember from what we once were and who we now are in Christ, that you are a new creature. Third, we need to be like newborn babies. We need to be longing for the pure milk of the word, not just, I don't even know how to say it, we just long for the pure milk of the word. And number four, we need to love one another from a redeemed heart.
I, you know, as I close the lesson this morning, as I always like to do, I like to close our lessons by going to the Lord in song. There's an old familiar hymn that I love. It was written by Joseph H. Gilmore in 1862. And it's called, He Leadeth Me. Would you stand with me and sing it together with me? He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own.